Welcome to this conversation. My guest today is Dr. Douglas Pote. Uh, many of you may know Dr. Pote from his time at the Glade Spring Clinic in Glade Spring, but today we don't have any particular thing we're talking about. We're just talking. Dr. Pote is somebody that everybody just needs to know. So welcome to this conversation, Dr. Douglas Pote. Okay, well, thank you, Teresa. And it's great to be here on your radio program. Uh, of course, you and I have known each other for a long time. And so it's just, you know, it's great to be here to chat with you. Yes, well, you are the best physician in the whole wide world, as far as I'm concerned. But the sad thing is, and this, we might as well just admit this right away and get it over with, you are retired, you're no longer practicing medicine. So how long have you had this new life and uh, how's it going? Well, uh, I retired in May, so now we're going on six months and it's been very good. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, you know, it really was a privilege and a pleasure to provide medical care to people in this area for almost 40 years, 39 years. And um, when I finished my residency at Wake Forest, um, you know, almost every small town was looking for a doctor. So there was, you know, plenty of opportunity, but I'm just really glad that I wound up here. That's and such a wonderful sentiment. And it's especially interesting that you wound up here since you were from the Northeast part of the country. You were from Sturbridge, Massachusetts. How close is that to Boston? Sturbridge is about 70 miles west of Boston. Sturbridge is a small town and it's in central Massachusetts. And what I, what I say is I went to a high school that was called Tantasqua High School. It was a regional high school. Uh, we call it a consolidated high school down here, but it was a fairly new school and it was called Tantasqua High School named after a local Indian tribe. And we were the Tantasqua Warriors. Ah. And I eventually wound up in Chilhowee, Virginia, which is an Indian word meaning Valley of Many Deers. And we are the Chilhowee warriors. <laughs> so um, I think Chilhowee is probably more like Sturbridge when I grew up there than Sturbridge is now. So in a lot of ways, I feel like I found home. Yeah, full circle. Take us back to Sturbridge, Massachusetts, some memory from your childhood that would kind of set the stage for what your life was like back then. Yeah. Uh, well, Sturbridge is known because it has a major New England tourist attraction called Old Sturbridge Village. And Old Sturbridge Village is a recreated colonial town of the period about 1800 to 1850. And all the buildings are original old buildings, but they're assembled into a town with a tavern, a church, uh, a farm, covered bridges, blacksmith shop. And people from Sturbridge can go there for free. And when I was nine years old and lived only about a mile away, I took full advantage of that. And I used to go there during the summer almost every day with my bike, my fishing pole and my dog and just play in the mill ponds and on the covered bridges. And it gave me a tremendous, um, a tremendous insight into the way life used to be. What a beautiful story. What detail. So and, here you are a little kid running around on your bike with a fishing pole. Now, where does medicine come in? You, you got an idea of what life was like back then 
was there like an exhibit of the 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 village physician and you said that's got to be me where did that come from uh no really um a lot of people in my family are engineers and so i got a degree in engineering and then i worked um as an engineer briefly but also because i couldn't find an engineering job i worked in a hospital for a while and, you know, that just gave me an appreciation for medicine. And, you know, I decided I wanted to go into medicine. And after I got my degree in engineering and worked for a few years, then I went back and went back to school and went to Eastern Virginia Medical School, did my family medicine residency at Wake Forest. And I'm very, very glad I made that change. So the idea of becoming a physician was just because you worked in a hospital because you couldn't find an engineering job? Yeah. And um, yeah, so I just worked there for a while and that just gave me a, <clears throat> a big insight into, you know, the wonderful world of medicine. And it was a great change because I really don't think I ever would have been a great engineer, but, you know, I've really enjoyed being a doctor. Well, let's talk about what the best and the worst has been of being a doctor. Now, I really am still missing that spark, you know, the, the beginning of life spark. You were in the hospital working. What exactly were you doing? What did you see that made you think, this is what I want to do? Uh, well, I was actually working as a respiratory therapist and, you know, got to do all kinds of things with, you know, with people with serious illness. And, I just admired the dedication and the knowledge that uh, physicians had. In particular, there was a doctor there whose name was Mortimer Schnee. <laughs> no way. <laughs> and uh, he was the head of the respiratory therapy department. And so he used to, uh, about once a week, he would come and talk to us about different diseases and you know the pathophysiology and what was happening in the body when someone had an asthma attack and what it meant to have a heart attack or what congestive heart failure was. And I, I thought these things were just amazing. And um, you know, engineering and you know, pipes and wires and all that kind of stuff. I mean, it was just never that interesting to me, but learning how the body, the human body functioned really was interesting to me you're a you're a people person yeah well yeah also um you know again when you when you were about to ask me what's the best and worst about being a, a doctor certainly uh when i first went to medical school uh eastern virginia medical school was a fairly new school and they wanted us to get real world experience right from the start so I was fortunate that on Saturday mornings, I would go out to a family doctor in Virginia Beach named Dr. Garrison, Dr. Jack Garrison. And I just loved the way he just seemed to know everything about all his patients. And they, you know, they, they loved him and, you know, he, he, he just knew all about them. And uh, I, I felt like that is the kind of doctor I want to be. And I'm happy to say that, you know, I think I did succeed in that. Well, as a former patient, I would say that you did. And I've often wondered about that is how, what kind of a toll does it take? Is it hard to have so many patients and to, to know and care about all of them, what you seem to have done? 
Um, well, you, you know, I, I, I just enjoy my patients. And there's almost all my patients that I, they and I talk about things that aren't really related to medicine. And, um, you know, I, that is the aspect of medicine that I really enjoy. Just getting to know people and helping them with their problems. Uh, that's one thing that in retirement, you know, uh, you know, I hate that now, you know, I'm not in a position where I can help people with their problems who I've helped, you know, for years, but at the same time, it's just a new chapter in my life. Now you were going to ask me how, um, uh, you know, about the, the negative aspect of medicine. And, um, you know, what I've always said is, um, you know, one bad thing about being a family doctor is, you know, your patients over time sort of become your friends, but then you get to watch these people, you know, have advanced problems, problems that, you know, really don't have a solution. And, um, you know, of course, many have passed on. And so I think that's the hard part of it. Uh, the second hard part is uh, the computer systems that have been introduced into medicine, you know. I mean, I fully understand the need and the importance of record keeping, but I mean, you don't need a four, page, four or five page document for every office visit. You know, I always joke that, you know, top of page one, sore throat, bottom of page five, amoxicillin, 250 milligrams, three times a day. I mean, you know, and all the rest is just filler and boilerplate. And unfortunately, in the end, I'm spending a lot more time with my computer than I am with the patients. I had a medical student with me once. And so I said to him, um, you know, I want you to keep track of the time I'm actually in the room with the patient. And we saw about 15 people that day, which is about the most I could do once we, get the, once we got the computers. Now, before we had the computers, I could see 20, 25 people a day, but now it was only 15. But in that day, I was with the patients two hours and 45 minutes in an eight hour day. The rest of it was with the computer. So Dr. Pote, you're talking about seeing 15 patients a day versus 20 to 25 with the advent of computers and having to put everything into a document and make all the details available for later. It sounds like some of that could be related to legalities, but it also sounds like big medicine, big business, see more patients. Is that the case or did you own your own practice? No, I mean, I was an employee of Ballot Health. Uh, I've had, you know, when I first came into this area, I joined a group practice, which is a private practice. And then I had in, for about five years in Bristol, I had my own practice that was just me. And that was interesting. And then I had the opportunity to move up to Glade. And initially I was just an independent contractor, but then I became an employee of Mountain States, which morphed into Ballad Health. You know, obviously that's quite different, but one thing I will say is when we first got our computers, people that were in private practice, like my old practice in Marion, you know, they really couldn't afford them. And so I went up and talked to them one day about what it was like to have the computer. 
which is of course a big expense for them, also cuts your efficiency, very high maintenance costs. But I felt fortunate because, you know, I didn't have to bear the brunt of all these things. You know, I was getting paid. Uh, Ballard was buying the computers. They were man maintaining them. And, you know, if my volume went down, ultimately it was really off of them more than me. I mean, obviously medicine is, you know, becoming very complicated, but I would like to say that mainly, you know, the essence of medicine is still, you know, the doctor and the patient. Not all doctors are the same. Not all doctors are right for every person. Uh, you know, it has to be a match. I think the essence of providing medical care is sooner or later, you have to look the person into the eyes and communicate with them. You know, I think that's still the essence of medicine and hopefully this will continue to be maintained. What do you think? What are your predictions? I think medicine's gonna become more corporate. Um, and also a lot of the decision-making making has been taken out of the physician's hands and they're in the hands of the insurance companies the drug companies, and the government. Which and seems to me like a thing to wring your hands over and be concerned about. I guess at this stage in my career, I'm not that concerned about it. But I, I think I've recently been at least nominated to be on um, a governmental advisory board. And so, you know, I may get involved with it with that. But um, I, I mean, you know, let's face it, the future of medicine's just out of my hands and out of my control. And I think we've also talked enough about medicine, and I think it would be good to talk about some of the other things that have, you know, been important in my life. Oh, yes, I, I know that. We've got still about half the time left, and I'm getting okay. to that. I do need to ask you one more medicine question, though, okay. Okay. because you retired in the middle of COVID. What are your thoughts about the COVID situation that we're in now? Well, uh, I mean, when I retired, I thought I was retiring at the end of COVID, but obviously not. I think the main thing that I'd like to say about that is, I mean, uh, of course, I've been triple vaccinated. And when I got my first vaccine, it had only been available in the country for one week. But I mean, it had been approved for one week. Uh, you know, so it was somewhat of a risk. But now we can see that the vaccines are safe and they are um, effective. And honestly, I don't understand people's reluctance to get them, quite frankly. You know, if you don't get a flu shot, I don't care. You know, with this, it does affect everybody, which is why, you know, I'm still not doing some of the things that I want to do, uh, still wearing masks and all that kind of stuff, not because of me, but because of other people. Right. So COVID, I think COVID is always going to be here, but I think it's going to become a lot more manageable when more people get vaccinated, when there are medicines that can specifically treat it, which hopefully are going to be coming out soon. So, Okay. So Dr. Pote, after what, gee, what was it? 40 years of practicing medicine in this area. It is clear you are you are retired and ready to let that go. And you have other things that you're excited about. Yeah. If people have paid attention at all to the big things going on in this region, they know that you're not just a physician, but mm -hmm. that you are a playwright and that you've had mm -hmm. three plays produced at Barter Theater. Mm -hmm. So tell us 
about that and what you think the next step is going to be in your future with the theater? Uh, well, of course, yes, I was very, very fortunate, mainly because of my lifelong interest in music to, to write three plays that were, have been produced at Barter Theater. Uh, the last one was called America's Blue Yodeler by Jimmy Rogers, who is the first person inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame and also in the inaugural class of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame as an early influence. The second one was called Man of Constant Sorrow, and that was about Ralph and Carter Stanley from Dickinson County. And then, of course, the first one was about the Carter family called Keep on the Sunny Side. And all of them were, you know, well-received and popular, but only one play really had magic. And that is, of course, Keep on the Sunny Side. And I've come to realize that if you write something that people want to see again and again, you've really done something special. And I've also come to realize that you know, it's, also, it's, it's one thing to, to create uh, a work of art, but what that, what that work of art really needs is someone to believe in it. And Rick Rose at Barter really believed that a play about the Carter family would be successful. And, you know, he's the one that really, really, you know, helped get it going, um, you know, as a successful production. You refer to the Carter family, but people might not know. So just a review of who they were okay. and why that's so big to you. Yeah. Like I said, I'm just very, very interested in music. And I, I mean, I always have been, and particularly the history of music, blues, early rock and roll um, and all that type of stuff. But somewhere along the line, I discovered the Carter family. And of course the Carter family are from Scott County, Virginia, AP, Sir and Maybell. And they recorded their first songs in Bristol in 1927. Four days later, Jimmy Rogers um, recorded his first songs. And between those two acts, they were the first really, really commercially successful country music artists. And really, they are the foundation for all country music. And the Carters really aren't even specifically country. I mean, they're in a way sort of more of a folk act. And they have influenced folk artists like Woody Guthrie, Bob Dylan, people like that also. So they're hugely in, uh, influ influential. And if anyone saw Ken Burns' country, recent country music documentary on PBS, 16 hours long, and I mean, the Carter family on and on and on. And the second hour of that thing was devoted primarily to uh, what happened in Bristol in 1927 with big emphasis on Jimmy Rogers and the Carter family. So Bristol is the birthplace of country music. I guess everybody knows that. They might not know the specifics of the story, but you yeah. fell in love with them. And then you got the idea somewhere along the way, I'm gonna write a play about this. Yeah, when I had my office in Bristol, that was when the BCMA got started. And uh, so I, I joined. As soon as I opened the Bristol paper and saw a picture of Tim White, Leighton Harding and Fred McClellan standing in front of Tim White's mural, I said, this is the group for me. 
So I became a part of that and we had a lot of fun and we did concerts at the Paramount Theater and everything. But we would have meetings on the stage at the Paramount Theater and Rick Rose came to one of those stages maybe around 1995. And he said that the barter would be interested in doing plays based on the area's musical and cultural heritage. So right away, I thought about the Carter family. Honestly, all I was thinking about is their music, um, not their story or anything like that. And I just thought to myself, for some reason, that this would be great. And I just carried this idea in my head for six years, hoping I could find someone who would be interested in writing it. <laughs> and in 2001, my wife and I went to see uh, Smoke on the Mountain at the Barter, and Rick Rose was out in the lobby, and I said, did you ever think about doing a play about the Carter family? And he said, man, yes, we want to do that. That would be awesome. So I said, well, I'm not a writer, but I do know a lot about the Carter family, so if you ever get a chance to writing it, I think I can help you. So he took my name down, and so I went home, and I thought, well, Maybe if I wrote an outline, that would help them. And then I thought, well, actually, I do know how of these scenes should go, so I'll start that. So I wrote four scenes, sent them in. They said they liked it and wanted me to finish it, and the rest is history, so to speak. Yes, history. I remember seeing that show, and it was magical. You're right. It was magical. But now you're retired. You've got three plays that you have done. What's going to be next? Uh, I don't know, really. I, I don't know if I will write another play or not. Uh, I think if I was going to write anything, um, I would try to turn Keep on the Sunny Side into a, into a screenplay. And I did take, um, as in retirement, uh, I did take a course through the Lincoln Theater on screenwriting. So uh, I think that if I if I am going to have a writing project, it's probably going to be that. Well, I'm just going to say right here that there is no if to this. It's going <laughs> to clearly happen just the way it's you said you'd be done. Yeah, it has to be done and you're going to do it. And yeah, I mean, clearly there's an interest. You talked about yeah. the Ken Burns series on country music and there's just and in this region, there's such an interest in it. And it's a story that it, it pertains to everybody in the country, because as you said, it's the foundation of country music and folk music and all kinds of things. So when do yeah. you get started is the question. Yeah. Uh, well, I've already started writing it a little bit. And so we'll, we'll see how things work out. This is interesting. So you started off as an engineer. You went into medicine. You mm -hmm. love music. Do you perform music? I wouldn't say perform, but I do play guitar and, you know, play guitar and sing a little bit, but I mean, I don't have a great singing voice, so I don't really perform. But I, I just have always had a huge interest in music, which gets me around to a question I would like to ask you. Uh -oh. when, when do you think we, when do you think we first met? You I and I? You, I don't. When do you think we first met? I have no idea. I know that I started teaching in Emory in 19, I hate to say this out loud, <laughs> I'm not, 1985 so it was a probably about then why uh well uh, I thought you would say sometime around you know I was the college physician for Emory from like around 1990 to 1995 something like that I thought you would say that but when I first moved to Marion I thought that people up here would mainly like country music but I found in the, uh, in the young professional group 
that I sort of fell, fell in with when I first moved here. Most of them liked soul music and beach music. And of course, you know, they had all gone to, you know, when they grew up, they all went to vacation at Myrtle Beach and they listened in all the clubs there and played a lot of beach music and soul music and all that. And that's what they liked. So that movie, The Blues Brothers, had come out not too much before that. So I thought it would be a good idea to try to recreate the show band that the Blues Brothers, you know, had in that movie. And so we did, we put together, we found a bunch of musicians and we put together, and I, I didn't play in this, but I was in more in innovation and promotion and song selection and things like that. But we put together a group that we called the Blues Brothers Brothers. And we had um, two fine young Af African-American singers who played the part of John Bellucci and Dan Aykroyd. We had a kicking five-piece band. We had three female backup singers. We had a three-piece horn section. And it was a, a great band that um, we performed shows with, usually in conjunction with the American Cancer Society. And we raised a lot of money for them. We had shows in Bristol, we had shows in Marion, we did shows at the Hardware Company in Abingdon. And to promote one of our shows that was raising money for the Cancer Society, we heard about a young woman who had a noontime show on WCYB television. That would have been me, did I interview you? Yeah, that was the Teresa Keller show. And so we went down and you know, they performed some songs there on your show. And that is when I first met you. Oh my goodness. And you had never brought that up in all the years I've known you since. Wow, well, well I yeah. tell you, you have been around Dr. Pope. I mean, with all kinds of activities and interests and performances and from theater to whatever, and you are gonna, I hope, enjoy your retirement. I can't thank you enough for being with me as my guest today. Well, thank you very much. I mean, it's always, I mean, it's been great knowing you and Fred and all these years. And thank you for having me on the show. It's been great. Well, thank you so much. And as I said, when we started this, this interview is just because sometimes there's just somebody that people need to know. It's not about anything that's happening at the moment that's particularly timely, but it's just about some people you need to know. Well, yeah, we're not promoting anything. It's just uh, to get acquainted. That's right. Thank you for being here with our listeners. And above all, I thank the listeners regularly for tuning in to WEHC. This conversation is on Wednesdays at six, Sundays at two. Thanks, everybody, and see you next time.